this summer, and I, I don't know if I've talked about this on Sunday morning. I've talked about this in, in several small groups, but um, this summer, my family and I went to Utah, and um, we took the advice of several of you about to take a nice, easy hike called Angel's Landing. And those of you that told us it was no problem, I still have some bitter feelings that I'm working through <laughs> toward you. Um, and I, I may have talked about this before, but Angel's Landing is this really unique hike that is, is in Zion National Park, and you go out on this island of rock, basically, that's a thousand feet up in the air. And there's this little spine of rock that goes out there. And um, we, you, you hike about three, four miles just to get to the, the scout's landing where you can see where to go. And we get there, and we decide that uh, Susie and Jeffrey and Alicia are going to stay there and visit and just rest and have a nice time, and that Mark and I are going to go further. And the nature of this hike, and, and some of you have seen pictures, is you're, you're going out on this narrow narrow island or narrow pathway of rock to get to this island with about 1,000-foot drop-offs on either side. At least that's what the sign said. I, I wouldn't really look. Um, and um, you're going, and at some points, the pathway, and I am not exaggerating, those that have done before, the pathway is this wide. And, and we got to those points, we're like, what do we do? And, and so we just kept going, and, and Mark and I had an agreement that if either of us were done, we were both done, and we'd turn around and go back. But then you know you have to go back across the stuff you already came. Um, but we get to this one spot, the ridge, the spine, where it's that narrow, and you have this drop-off. And, and fortunately, they have these cables, these chains that you're holding onto. And, and Mark's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, gripping for dear life. And, and just, tr- I, I wish I was crawling. Um, and... and I'm not actually exaggerating. Mark, Mark will tell you, yeah, Dad was pretty scared. Um, but at this point, you have these chains, and so you grab this chain and you go hand over hand to get across this really narrow ledge that if you fall off of, you will most likely die. I, I don't see how you wouldn't. There are some things at that moment in time that you are trusting. Fair enough? With that chain, one of the things you're trusting is that it will actually support your weight. Because if it's one of those little plastic Home Depot chains, I ain't going across that ridge. Because if I fall or put any weight on it, it snaps and it goes with me. But, and so you look at the chain and it's this thick metal and you're like, okay, and you look up and 100 people have gone before you and they haven't died, so that's, that's a positive. And, um, and so you, you go hand over hand. So you trust that the chain has the strength to hold your weight, Right? Now, what's the other thing you have to trust about that chain? You have to trust that it's going to go the right direction. Because if it suddenly veers off and goes down over the ledge, that also is bad. That's, it's no longer trustworthy because now, yeah, it might hold your weight, but if it takes you to a place that is not where you'd want to go, that is not in your best interest, then that's a problem. And and so you trust that whoever put these chains have already decided what the best way is for that path and what the best way is for success in that path. And there's times that you're looking at the chain and you're thinking, I think that way might be better because it looks nice and flat. But what you don't know is it doesn't go anywhere and it's a drop off on the end. And so you follow the chain and you get to the end and and you, you crawl to the edge and look over and say, that was nice. And then you crawl back. But, um, no, it, it, was, it was an experience I will never forget. And um, 
probably never do again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you should do it. It's easy. Um, that's what everyone told me, right? Um, those that went. This morning, that typifies what I want to talk about as we come to the life of Christ, because there's two aspects of trust or faith in that chain that were required. It had to have the strength to hold me, and it had to have my best interest in mind, whoever put that in, to take me the right direction. And those are the two things that we want to look at in our stories today as Jesus is coming down from the Sermon on the Plain and coming into town, and he now is is approaching a people in a dark world and he approaches people that are hurting and in difficult situations and he's asking them to trust him. And he's asking them to follow him. And he's, he has this growing band of disciples and he intentionally now will take some situations of some people in very distressing circumstances and he will show that he has the power to help. And he has the strength to help. And he can hold them up but he will also show that he has compassion and love and has their best interest in heart and and cares for them deeply. Because if you have a God who has all power but no compassion, what kind of God is that? Cruel, mean, that is not a God we would follow. If we have a God that has all compassion but no strength to actually help you in anything, well, that's just empty words. But today we want to see a God that combines compassion and power all the time, every moment of every day, and then see what our faith response to that should be. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And like I said, the Sermon on the Plain is done. And now we have the next three chapters that are going to really explore Jesus' ministry in the Galilee, up north in Israel. And, and really zero in on who Jesus is and what his ministry should look like. Who Jesus is and what his ministry should look like. And he's going to be doing some things that very intentionally show who he is. If you remember back in Luke chapter 4, and this just goes back a couple chapters, but Jesus is talking about his ministry, and this is where he takes the Isaiah scroll and he applies it to himself. But he quotes Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now as we see Jesus' ministry unfold, we're going to see him do these things. We're going to see him fulfill prophecy and and bring sight to the blind and and bring life to those that are dead. And and he is going to intentionally be fulfilling prophecy in these ways to show that he's the Messiah. That's going to come up real directly next week with Pastor Andrew as he he talks through John the Baptist and, and Jesus talks to some of his disciples. But we come to two very interesting stories that show his power and compassion at the same time and illustrate to us what our response should be. And so we'll start at chapter 7 and 1 through 10, and we'll take each of these stories separately. We'll do 1 through 10 and then 11 through 17. And we start with the centurion. And what can we learn from the centurion? If you look at your notes, point number one is, what kind of faith does Jesus marvel at? Faith that trusts in God's authority and power. Then I added, without having to take control ourselves. Because that's an issue, isn't it? We want to know how things are going to work out. We want to take control. We want to let God know what he should do, where that path should go. But what kind of faith does Jesus marvel at or is Jesus amazed at? 
Faith that trusts in God's authority and power without having to take control ourselves. That humbly recognizes His authority and follows it and surrenders to it and comes under it. And really, if we think of trust, if we think of faith, the first element has to be, is the, is the thing we're trusting in faithful enough to do this? Are they powerful enough to do this? And so we come to the text and verses 1 and 2 really give us the setting of the story. After he had finished all his, his sayings, and this is Jesus, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, do you remember who lived in Capernaum? little test. Starts with a P and ends with eater. <laughs> Peter lived there, okay? And, so, and, and this is where the fishermen were called. This is where Matthew or Levi was called to be a disciple. And this became Jesus' sort of central base, his hub of ministry while he was ministering in Galilee. It's right on the Sea of Galilee. And um, it's, if you um, think of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just about a half mile north of, the, of where the Sermon on the Mount happened. And so he goes about a half mile north. He enters Capernaum. And it goes on in verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now Luke's readers would have been a little surprised by that verse. We just sort of glaze over it and that's where some of the culture helps us. And this is why we like to talk about culture, to understand God's word, to see the context. A centurion was a Roman soldier that usually had about 100 men under him. Now at this point in time, We know it wasn't until about 14 years later that Roman troops were garrisoned in the Galilee. So at this point in time, a centurion, that would have been his status in the Roman army. But then at times, Herod would take different senior officials and they would become leaders of a police force or a tax collecting force in different towns. And so this centurion is probably one of those. We don't know for sure. But probably there weren't a hundred men stationed there, but he had risen to power by faithful service in the Roman army. And now he got this post at Capernaum to keep the peace, keep order, and to make sure everyone paid their taxes. So if you remember what we've talked about about tax collectors, this would make this man a fairly despised man in, in general. And normally it would. He's helping collect taxes. So he's helping Matthew and Levi. And if you remember our discussion about that, that was a position that abused their fellow countrymen that took advantage of them to gain money for Rome and themselves. And so the, the, the centurion would have been a symbol of that. He would have been a symbol of Rome's oppression. And he's living in Capernaum with him. And so Jesus has just come down from, from the Sermon on the Plain and he's just talked about love your enemy. Pray for those that persecute you. Bless those that curse you. And he comes into town and, and, and here's the delegation from this centurion. And so you can just picture the setup here. And, and, and my goal in some of these stories is to help us actually picture them because they actually happened. And, and you can see, okay, so, so what are you going to do, Jesus, with an enemy? You just had a great talk about it. What are you going to do? Are you going to put your words into practice? And so this man comes, but we're going to find out in the story, he was actually a man that was respected in town. He was a different kind of centurion. And that was very rare. One of the ways you see that is in verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. That's all, that's all normal. And, and Matthew describes that as paralyzed. Something he had was, was bringing him near death. But the next phrase 
is, is really sort of an eye-opener who was highly valued by him. Romans did not value slaves. Slaves were like dogs. They were, they were the animal that, that did something for you and you just could brush them aside. And so for a servant to be highly valued by a centurion gives us a little picture into his character, into who he was. This was a good man that valued people, a good leader. But we come now, and, and the centurion in verse 3 hears about Jesus. And this is the first delegation that comes. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. He is the one who built our syna- us our synagogue. And this delegation of, of elders or Jewish leaders of the town came to petition Jesus to help him. And it looks like the centurion had asked them to go do this and, and he had heard about Jesus. And the indication here is that he believed Jesus can do that. We'll see that as the text unfolds. He heard about Jesus that he could heal and he believed in him somehow. What level of belief as we go along we're going to, to find out a little more of, but at least the introductory level, he believed Jesus had this ability to heal and that he was acting on behalf of God. So he sends this delegation. I can picture him getting some of the Jewish elders together and, and say, hey, hey, could you go talk to Jesus for me? And, and we could view this a couple different ways, but as we look at Jesus' response, the, the impression here is that he's doing this out of sensitivity. He knows he's a Roman. He knows he's a Gentile. And to approach this Jewish teacher, he does not want to be imposing. He does not want to force his will on Jesus. He's trying to be culturally sensitive to how this needs to happen, to what is appropriate. And so he comes to the Jewish leaders with this request, and they go to him. And and interesting, it says that he had even helped them build their synagogue. He was well-respected. I have a picture, Don, if you could put that picture up. This is the synagogue in Capernaum um, at what's left of it today. Now, this is a fourth century synagogue. The the first century that Jesus um, would have been part of was destroyed. And then the fourth century was built on top of it. But you can see the pillars at the end where some things, um, some readings would have happened and some teaching. Along the left are all kinds of benches where most, most of the people would have sat. But this is the same location that Jesus would have been talking about here, which is pretty cool. In fact, if you, if you go to it, you can go to the side of it and you can look under the white stones here and you can see the black stones that were the foundation of the first century synagogue. And so we know that this is where, this is just a little bit up from Peter's house and um, just sort of fun to, to see. It's, it's interesting to know that this centurion helped build this and was part of this. And so he was sensitive to the faith of the Jews and sensitive to their desire for a Messiah. Another thing we, we learn about the, the centurion with this is he was probably a man of, of high status because to build a synagogue wasn't cheap. And so he probably had money, he probably had influence, and he used that to help the town. But we're getting insight into his character. He's a good man, but he's a humble man. A proud centurion would have just come to Jesus and demanded, I'd like you to heal my servant. I want you to heal my servant. Heal my servant now. But instead, he finds a sensitive way to ask the question and goes through the elders. Not a demand, but a request. 
And, 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 and we see even some in his example here, we see so many things we can pattern. There's so many times that, that we just jump out with requests and we push our requests on people. We're like, well, I'm just going to ask the question. They can say no if they want. And that's not really loving people. We need to be considerate of others. We need to be sensitive of others and, and follow this example. And we go on and see him continue with that. In verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And that's an insight into Jesus heard this request and he starts to follow. We don't see compassion that much. That's our only hint of, of compassion that's going to be stressed in the next, next story. But Jesus went with them. He heard the request. And they get close to the house, not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, and this is the second delegation and another example of humility, sent friends out saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. Now think about even that title. Isn't that cool? The centurion calls Jesus Lord or Master. He's coming under Jesus' authority. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. What have the, the Jews just said? Look how worthy this man is with all these externals. But the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, some think that this was a matter of cleanliness because a Jew was not allowed into a Gentile's home that would make them ceremonially unclean. But I think we have to take the text at face value. This is more an issue of worthiness that the centurion did not feel worthy of having this great teacher in his house. It's it's an element of respect. It's an element of humility. So verse 7, and they're meeting him outside, just, just almost to the house probably. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you And so he's sending servants. Again, this isn't an aspect of being proud, but an aspect of, you know, I'm not even worthy to impose on you, so I'm going to send my servants and let you know that, that you don't have to come the rest of the way. But listen to why he says that. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And what the centurion is saying is, I know that with a word, you have authority and can take care of this. I recognize your power. I recognize your authority and come under it. And and he compares it to his own, but he views Jesus' authority as so much more. And so he's saying, with a word, my servant can be healed. Because I know I have authority over my men, and you have authority over everything. Over disease, over sickness. What a testimony to the centurion's belief of who Jesus is. He believed Jesus could do anything with a word. Anything. He believed in the power of Jesus. This is faith. This is an element of faith that Jesus has the power to do what he says he will do, that he has the power to work in any situation. Do we always think that Jesus can help our situation? Do we always know that God can handle anything, anything we face? If so, the question I ask myself is, why do I worry sometimes? Why do I worry? Because when I worry, I don't think it's handled. That's why later in the New Testament, 
We read, be anxious for nothing or do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. This man believed Jesus had authority and power. And listen to Jesus' response in verse 9. Still outside, still the servants. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Ow. Ow. It wasn't necessarily saying they had no faith, but they definitely had lesser faith. And he's in a, a Jewish town. And he marvels at this man. There's only two times in the Gospels that we have Jesus recorded as marveling at something. So this is significant. It's, it's being amazed, astounded at something. The only other time it's mentioned is Mark 6, 6, and he's marveling at the unbelief in Nazareth. So this is the only positive time Jesus marvels and is amazed at someone, and it's a Roman centurion, a Gentile. But it's a Gentile who believed God was who he said he was and believed God could handle any situation and was willing to act on that belief. Jesus marveled at him, turned to the crowd and said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You know, we, we can't really understand the depth of maybe how that would have hit home. I mean, what if, I, I don't know, what if someone that was a non-believer from, from San Francisco, I don't know, from someone, somewhere nearby walked in and came down and had a conversation with one of the elders. And, and after that conversation, the elder turned and said, and, and this is a non-believer, someone that, that doesn't believe at all in Christ. And the elder turned and said, man, not even in our whole congregation have I found the faith that this person has. That would sting a little bit, wouldn't it? We'd be like, wait a minute. How can you say that? And I think that's a little bit of what Jesus is trying to get across. This is what faith looks like. Jesus is amazed by faith. Faith that Jesus can do as he wills, from wherever he wills, and accomplish his will. Catch that? Faith that Jesus can do as he wills, from wherever he wills, and accomplish his will. He can heal the servant from the street. He just has to say the word. And so we see the centurion's faith as a trusting faith that God can handle this. A faith that brings peace. Now, now catch something in the text because there's a comparison here that we, we may read past. One of the, the, the things that Jesus is bringing out is why Jesus is, is astonished at this man. It isn't about the list of credentials that the Jewish leaders said. He doesn't say, never in all of Israel have I seen someone that's built such an incredible synagogue. Or never have I seen someone that's been so considerate to his servants. Those are all great qualities and we can learn from that the humility Jesus isn't concerned about the externals. He wants to know what the heart is. And he, he commends the heart of faith that believes in Christ. Through this, a number of scholars are, are looking at this faith and how Jesus uses the word faith here um, it is not just a faith and a trust that God will do something for them. It's almost always used as more of a saving faith, a faith that Jesus is God and is the Messiah. 
And we don't know that for sure, but there sure is a lot of hints and a lot of suspicion by scholars that this was more than just a faith that Jesus could heal, but a faith that would enable him to say, you are Lord, you are Lord of my life. This is a centurion. One of three, incidentally, that we have recorded that follow Christ. You see the centurion at the cross that acknowledged who the Messiah was. You see Cornelius in in Acts. And so this all reminds us that salvation was intended for the world, was intended, intended for all. If you look at the end of that, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, so Jesus said about the faith, they go home, they found the servant well. He's well. Jesus healed him based on that faith. Didn't even take a word. Isn't that cool? He just had to think it. Servants healed. That is the kind of power our Lord has. A couple of lessons out of this story, and you see that at the bottom of the first page of your notes. Both of these stories are, are, my goal today is that they are reminders to us that comfort us. Reminders to us that bring encouragement to us. The things we already know but need to be reminded of. And this is a reminder that we can have a trusting faith in God in any situation as He can do all things. We can have a trusting faith in God in any situation as He can do all things. Where's the emphasis of this story? Is it on the healing? No, the, the, the climax of the story is actually on the faith. I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And so what, what Jesus here is bringing us back into what a challenge of what kind of faith do we have in God? We can trust Him in any situation. A faith in Christ's authority and power that will never let us down. A faith that was humble. A faith that believes God can and is working. A faith that comes under God's authority and submits. And a faith that asks and makes requests of Jesus. Think of situations you're involved in. And you you may be touching a lot of difficult situations this holiday season as you visit with friends and family and in company parties. Christ is enough for every one of those situations. He is able to handle every situation. We need to be reminded of that and take joy in that, take peace in that. Second lesson from, from, from this centurion, be humble. God isn't looking at our status or accomplishments, but at our heart. And that just summarizes what we've already talked about. But true faith is always humble. I, I, I have not seen cases where you can be proud and have faith in someone. Because being proud means I trust myself. Whereas faith in someone else means I have to acknowledge I can't do this and I need someone else. And so if we are proud people, if we are self-centered, it is really hard to have faith and put our trust in God. We can, we can say it with our mouth, but it is really hard to actually step out in faith and go out on that skinny little ridge holding that chain. But when we are humble, when we realize it's my heart that comes under God and I need Him, and I trust Him rather than myself, then I can take those steps and watch God work. So the centurion shows us what a trusting faith looks like. He shows us what a humble faith looks like. And as I already mentioned, he reminds, this story reminds us that God is for everyone. What an encouragement. Luke was probably written to Gentile Christians. What an encouragement to them. 
to say, oh, there's a Gentile. And he, he believed in Jesus. And, and, and Jesus healed his servant and blessed him. And Jesus crossed racial barriers. He crossed gender barriers. He crossed boundaries all over the place with the gospel because all are invited to salvation. And all are invited into the family of God. We see amazing faith, amazing authority, and amazing power in this first story. We move to the second story, the next six, seven verses. And it really, I I think, answers the question, okay, so how can we trust an all-powerful God? How can we trust that he won't take advantage of us? And we see here one of his other attributes, his compassion and his love come out. Verse 11. And again, we see the setup to the story here. The widow who has lost everything including hope. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And Don, if you can put that map up, I forgot to bring up a laser pointer today, but um, you can see the Sea of Galilee. That's the blue spot in the middle. And up at the northwest, you see Capernaum, almost to the north shore there. If you come down to the southwest, you see Nazareth, but Nain is to um, to the right and down a little bit from Nazareth. It's about 25 miles from Capernaum. Just sort of fun to see that Jesus was ministering in the whole region. So he and his disciples take a walk. They go to Nain. The disciples probably don't know why. Jesus knows why. Jesus knows what they're going to face. And, and it says, And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. More and more people are following him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so this is the setup. This is the picture. They start to come to town. They see the town. They see the gate to town. And out of the town comes this funeral procession. And in their funeral processions, the the mom would come first, um, in this case, if, if it was a son. So the widow is coming first, and they're carrying the body behind her. And, and um, probably on a plank or something like that. And they're carrying the body and she's weeping. And then all the friends and family are weeping and wailing around. This probably is the very same day the son died because they didn't um, preserve the bodies. And so they would have done this this, as quickly as possible to, to bury this boy. And so you have a mom who's already lost her husband. She's already a widow. And she now has lost her son. And this is that same day and Jesus comes upon them. And he's going to show a different side of why we can trust him. And we have to understand this widow without a husband or son, she is now one of the most vulnerable in society. There is no one to provide for her. There is no one to protect her. She no longer has a family line that can be passed on. Um, There's a great difficulty even to make a living. She's looking at a a future, a, a sure future of destitution and loneliness. But she's also well-loved. You see the crowd behind her coming out. And in verse 13, we see Jesus' heart. And that he had a compassion, a compassion that would actually act and take action. And when the Lord saw her, again, we see the word Lord, the master, the the, um, rabbi, the teacher. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And I picture it. I picture the funeral procession coming out and Jesus coming up, his disciples and crowd behind him and him coming up and maybe putting his hand on her shoulder and saying, don't don't cry. Don't weep. But in a way full of compassion. 
And that word for compassion means feeling from the, the bowels. And I know we, we think of that. Um, now that for them meant feeling deeply, feeling from the innermost parts of yourself. And so Jesus comes alongside her and loves her and cares about her. And in compassion says, don't weep. Don't weep. What a perfect example of compassion. One author said his, Jesus is able to show this extraordinary compassion because of his sinlessness and selflessness. I had to read that sentence a couple times. Okay, what does that have to do with compassion? But he went on to describe, really, it's, if, if we are not selfless, it's very hard to show compassion or feel mercy. Usually the, the, the wall to feeling this kind of compassion is we're so much into ourselves. And, and so we can't see, we can't put ourselves in someone else's shoes. But Jesus in his sinlessness and in his selflessness is able to give us this perfect example of compassion. And he comes and gives these caring words. And Luke has put these stories together. We see his great power and now his great compassion. And we've got to see both to see who Jesus is. And he comes up and touches the buyer, the, the funeral plank, and the bearer stood still. So he comforts the, the mom. And he comes up and, and touches the, the body the, or the plank that the body's on. Again, that would have been against Jewish law. That would have made him ceremonially unclean. But as we see over and over with lepers and with things, Jesus doesn't get the uncleanness from the object. His righteousness gets transmitted and changes whatever he touches. It's the same with us. As his righteousness clothes us and covers us because of the cross and he changes us, he doesn't become unclean because of our sin. He paid for it. He dealt with it. It's gone. And he can give us his righteousness. And he comes up and touches the buyer. And the barrister stood and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, if you're watching, how weird is this? I, they didn't have Walking Dead or whatever that show is. I don't know. I don't watch it. This is not normal. You don't talk to dead people. And he looks at the boy and says, Young man, arise. Now, how cruel is this if he doesn't have authority to match his compassion? Because mom's standing right there. How cruel would this be to say, I'm going to raise your son from the dead. And then you're yanking him because he's dead. If you don't have power to do it, this is, this is amazingly cruel. But Jesus had compassion and power. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And 16 tells the response. Fear sees them all. Yeah, you think? This guy was dead and they knew he was dead. They, they, they made sure before they buried people. And he, he stood up and was talking to mom. And fear mixed with awe was their first response. But then it goes on to say, and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And they say two things here, catch them. A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. The first saying was true, but not complete. Jesus was a great prophet, but so much more. The second saying started to get to more of the truth. God had, has visited his people. And they started to recognize that Jesus was at least God's emissary, 
But some were starting to realize Jesus is God. He has visited his people. God with us. Emmanuel. And he steps in with compassion and power and deals with the situation. Now when we think of prophet, this this whole story would have brought to mind Elijah and the widow. And and, and in fact, the wording that Jesus um, uses when he says, and gave him to his mother, is exactly the same wording out of 1 Kings 17 with Elijah. And so yes, they naturally would have tied him to the prophets. And, And he was in that line, but so, so much more. In the first story, Jesus is amazed. In this story, the people are amazed. And this report about him in verse 17 spread through the whole of Judea and to all of the surrounding country. And we see this picture of the power of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus together. That this morning village is the Jesus we serve. He has power. And this is a reminder to us to give us encouragement. He has power to handle any situation we're part of. And we know that he'll handle it well because he loves us and cares for us. Because he's seeking our good and his glory. Point number two in your notes was we can trust Jesus because he is not only powerful, but compassionate. He is not only powerful, but compassionate. Three lessons out of this story. The first is trust that our all-powerful God loves you and cares for you and wants your best. Trust that our all-powerful God loves you and cares for you and wants your best. I know this one's obvious, but this is the one that I forget every time I try to take control. This is the one I forget every time I chafe against the direction or what God has allowed into my life because I don't believe he has my best interest at heart sometimes. But God loves us and is compassionate and cares for us. That doesn't always mean we'll get what we want. What we want is not always what's best for us. Fair enough? Those of you with parents, you know this. Five gallons of ice cream a, a night for your kids is not what's best for them. But they want it. Trust that God and what he has put into your life is for your good and for his glory. Second lesson there is trust that no enemy stands before God, not even death. This speaks to the authority and the power. If he can raise the dead, he can handle your situation. And finally, all of these things are bringing a certainty that Jesus is the Christ. Be certain in your belief that Jesus is the Christ. We see a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. We, we want to remember these things because really at Christmas time, the incarnation and, and what we are celebrating with the birth of Christ and then the death of Christ, it represents these two things. When Jesus comes as a baby, it's representing he's humbling himself and he's coming to live the full extent of humanity to be with us, to have compassion on us, to help us. He has intervened where we could not because of our sinfulness by coming as a baby. But then he is going to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins and then rise again on the third day showing incredible power over death. 
And so we see in Christ, in Christmas, his power, the power of a king and the compassion of coming as a baby, of the incarnation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for showing your power and your compassion by coming, by rescuing us, by dying on the cross then and rising from the dead. Lord, help us to humbly come under who you are. To humbly call you Lord. To humbly trust you with any situation that we face. To remember that Jesus conquered sin and death. And so I owe him my life. Lord, thank you for being able to remember together for your sacrifice. In your name, amen.